Inside Leonard P. Jurgensen's suburban Milwaukee Rambler are hundreds of thousands of pieces of Schlitz Brewing Company Breweriana. When we get into the collection, you'll see how out of control it is. Basically, Breweriana is memorabilia from the beer industry. Tap poles, beer trays, bar mirrors, etc. And Leonard has them all. If Schlitz put its name on a thing, Leonard has it. Oh my God, stop it right now. Your entire basement is covered in Schlitz. It is like so many bottles, so many metal. Leather chairs made out of a Schlitz beer barrel? Check. An entire set of dishes from the Schlitz Hotel? Check. A fully restored horse-drawn Schlitz beer wagon? Beer wagon's in the garage. (laughs) Of course it is. Why would I even think that you wouldn't have a beer wagon? Of course. Check. Minus the horses. There's hardly any room in Leonard's house that isn't full of Schlitz stuff. Leonard remembers the moment he decided to start collecting. When we built this house in, in 78, and we had a cookout outside, my wife came out with a tin Schlitz tray, and I saw that tray and I said, I remember that brewery, I remember that company. Let's just save that tray, it's in great condition, and maybe I'll just collect a couple accent pieces. <laughs> Some accent pieces. <laughs> Leonard's collection has clearly grown beyond a few gugas and gym cracks. The sheer number and variety of items are a testament to Schlitz's former prominence. Refreshing Schlitz, the world's best-selling beer at any price you pay. One of the finer things. If you weren't of drinking age by the late 1970s, you probably don't remember Schlitz beer. It was the ubiquitous, easy-drinking, uncomplicated brew that your grandpa and all his friends drank. That is, if they weren't Strohs or Schaefer or Miller men. Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Schlitz Brewing Company rolled out its first barrel of beer in 1858. And over the years, it grew to be one of the biggest breweries in the country. For decades, it rivaled Anheuser-Busch as the top producer of American beer. And then, seemingly overnight, Schlitz was gone. I'm Lauren Ober, and from American Public Media and the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, this is Spectacular Failures, the show where we bump this with failure because we're buds like that. Just south of downtown Milwaukee lies the final resting place of many of the city's historical luminaries. Forest Home Cemetery is a sprawling 200 acres of winding hedgerows, stately fountains, and elaborate mausoleums. Every Milwaukeean who was anyone is buried here. Leonard P. Jurgensen, epic collector of Schlitz stuff, brought me here because he wanted me to see the city's brewing history all in one spot, Brewer's Hill. This is the gravesite of Captain oh, Paps. Look at that. And you'll That's see Captain Frederick Paps of PBR fame. Around the corner from Pabst is a monument to Valentine Blatz, who produced Milwaukee's first bottled beer. He's got a mausoleum the size of a tiny castle. This is this is really is something out here. It's beautiful. Do you have do you have a favorite? As far as a monument? Yeah, I I think this monument behind us. I think that's just a work of art. Yeah. Leonard points to a giant stone cenotaph topped with a figure of a woman in classical-looking drapery. It was erected in honor of Joseph Schlitz, the namesake of the Schlitz Brewing Company. He's not actually buried there. He was lost at sea in 1875. Poor guy. 
This little section of cemetery represents Milwaukee's beer history and, by extension, America's, though indigenous people have been brewing fermented beverages here forever. But what we think of as American beer starts in an unexpected place, with the fairer sex. Just kidding. That's gross. But really, it does start with women and human chattel. In those early decades, it was often women, uh, enslaved people, who were brewing in the home. Brewing beer was very much a a domestic chore. It was uh, linked to baking bread, so certainly nothing cool or glamorous or, uh, you know, sexy like it is these days. That's Dr. Teresa McCullough at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. She's basically the nation's beer historian, which is kind of cool. The first commercial brewery in what became the United States began in the early 1600s. But making a consistent pint is tough when there's no refrigeration. So most Americans stuck to swilling cider and spirits. That all changed with the arrival of the Germans beginning in the 1840s. Uh, Many of these immigrants arrived with brewing knowledge and with a different kind of approach to brewing. And so when these immigrants came, they had the know-how, they had the capital to found commercial breweries. And so that suddenly pushed women out of the picture as brewers. Uh, You know, beer was suddenly a profitable product that could be made by professional men. Uh, thanks for nothing, men. Anyway, with the arrival of German immigrants in the mid-1800s, many American cities took on a very Teutonic feel. In Milwaukee alone, close to half of the city's population was German. With Germans came lager, lots of it, and lederhosen and dirndls for everyone. Milwaukee was the perfect beer-brewing city. You had the lake, you had access to railroads, which brought the raw ingredients into the city. It shipped beer out eventually to consumers. And uh, so you really needed a kind of perfect combination of things to make a truly successful city that would stay as a brewing capital. Beer from Milwaukee, the very best in town. It makes you so talky. Drink it down, drink it down, drink it down. Almost as soon as they arrived, the German immigrants set up large-scale brewing operations in Milwaukee. The brewery that would become Pabst opened in 1844. Valentin Blatz and Frederick Miller opened their respective breweries shortly after that. August Krug was another of Milwaukee's early brewers. The Bavarian immigrant had been running his brewery for five years when he hired Joseph Schlitz as a bookkeeper in 1855. But just months after Schlitz came on board, Krug took a nosedive down a hatchway in his brewery and died a few days later. Had he imbibed too much of his own product? We'll never know. After Krug's fateful tumble, Schlitz, the bookkeeper, married the brewer's widow and took control of the business. Naturally, he changed the name to Schlitz Brewing Company. This wasn't unique. Brewers would expire, their employees would slide in, marry the widows, and then take over the brewery which would seem totally gross if this happened during a time when women had the means to run their own businesses. But at the time, that was nearly impossible. So if they wanted to keep the brewery in the family, they had to marry their dead husband's employee. If I was superstitious, I might say that the Schlitz Brewing Company was doomed from the start. 20 years after he took over Krug's brewery, Joseph Schlitz also shuffled off this mortal coil. On his way to a sharpshooting tournament in Germany, Schlitz drowned when the steamship he was traveling on sunk. In the wake of Schlitz's untimely death, the original owner's nephew took over the operation. August Eline would soon become one of the country's major beer barons, laying the foundation for the company's Sud supremacy. 
I'm only kind of embarrassed that I just said that. In the early days of American brewing, beer was a local beverage. You drank what was made in your town. A big step happened post-Civil War, so late 1860s, early 1870s, when the breweries began distributing their beer regionally and nationally. That's Ben Barbera. He's the curator of the Milwaukee County Historical Society. We're chatting at a bar inside Brew City MKE, which is the Historical Society's pop-up beer museum. The bar only serves beer brewed in Milwaukee, none of which we're partaking in during the interview, mind you, because that would be unprofessional. Barbera explains that Milwaukee kind of had its neighbor to the south to thank for its beer ascendancy. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire burned down most of the city's breweries. And because of that, its residents badly needed a drink. Luckily, Milwaukee beer makers were able to step up and travel the 90 miles to quench those thirsty Chicagoans. And so especially Schlitz, but the other breweries realized there was an opportunity here and just started shipping tons of beer to Chicago. Um, and then that just started the network. And, and that, so that was a really a turning point was 1871, 1872. These breweries became uh, national distributing breweries at that point. Do, do you think that Schlitz had anything to do with the fire? I can't imagine that he did, but I couldn't. I couldn't vouch for his his uh, whereabouts at that. We don't time. know. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. where was he? Right. We don't know. We don't know. This is true. All right, just something to think about. Um, <laughs> the business expansion that came as a result of the Chicago Fire catapulted Schlitz Brewing Company into the upper echelons of the beer industry, and for years the brewery was neck and neck with Anheuser Busch, the pride of St. Louis. I don't actually know if it's the pride of St. Louis, but damn, those Clydesdale horses are amazing. Anyway, for years after, Schlitz hummed along, cranking out beer and raking in money. And then it all slammed to a stop with the passage of the Volstead Act in 1920. Prohibition had a tremendous impact on all the breweries, uh, especially the smaller breweries in Milwaukee. The uh, larger breweries tended to have a lot of real estate holdings, and they were able to use that to sort of weather the storm, if you will. Lots of these breweries had hotels and theaters and things like that, whereas the smaller breweries didn't have those types of resources. Most of those smaller breweries went out of business. The larger breweries found creative ways to stay alive. Instead of making beer, Miller made soda, Blatt's made non-alcoholic beer, and Pabst made cheese. Schlitz turned to producing something called a cereal beverage, as well as a terrible line of chocolate bars. Naturally, after Prohibition ended in 1933, the breweries that survived came back online in no time. I mean, the people were parched. Schlitz continued to grow after World War II, and in the 1950s, it became the best-selling beer in the country. And it did that by building up a base of very loyal customers. And I talk to people today all the time who say, oh yeah, my dad, he was a, he was a Schlitz guy, that's all he would drink, or he would only drink Miller. Uh, and I mean, these, these, these loyalties were hard and strong. It wasn't because Schlitz tasted better than other beers. The big Milwaukee breweries, their beers didn't taste that different. They were all light, crisp, easy-drinking lagers. So they had to rely on brand loyalty, and they built that through advertising. The Schlitz ads are legendary. They featured all kinds of people enjoying their beer. Well, mostly just men people, because apparently women don't like beer, or they just serve the beer. Anyway, there are Nantuckety-looking fishermen just off the boat, there are outdoorsy guys running rapids in a big raft, and there are caddish businessmen making gross passes at women. What's a beautiful girl like you doing at a party like this? I'm giving it anything 
wrong? Uh, well, let myself introduce me. I'm Schlitz. I, I mean, I... You're out of Schlitz. There's just one Schlitz. Yeah, yeah. Nothing else comes near. I just want to play another one for you. Can I do that? Okay, so the scene opens on some firefighters. They're doing some sort of firefighter feel games, but they're mostly just spraying each other with water, which is like kind of sexy, but also like, what are they doing that for? Like, where's the fire? Life's too short to settle for less. Go for the gusto, or don't go at all. Schlitz called itself the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And it's kind of true. Beer did put Milwaukee on the map. Drive around the city today, and it's basically a monument to hops and barley. There's Pabst Theater in Miller Park, where the Brewers play Major League Baseball. In the summer, you can take in a concert on the green at Schlitz Park. Even in fictionalized versions of the city, beer takes center stage. Like on the TV show Laverne and Shirley, whose titular characters worked at the fictional Schatz Brewery. R.I.P. Penny Marshall. Schlitz Brewing Company was a massive enterprise. At its production peak in 1975, Schlitz brewed more than 23 million barrels of beer at 11 breweries around the world. That's enough beer to fill more than 1,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. But by the early 1980s, the 130-year-old Schlitz was no more. Its brew kettles dried up, its bottling lines stopped running. The beer that made Milwaukee famous, the beer with just a kiss of the hops, the only beer with gusto, ceased to exist. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, the Schlitz mistake. What went so wrong for one of America's favorite beers? And maybe what can be learned from it? Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. We all want to be our best selves, 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Spectacular Failures. I'm Lauren Ober. Among Leonard's Bruriana, Bruriana, go ahead, try to say it, is a brown glass bottle from the mid-1970s. Sitting amid the sexy swing-top glass and the ancient pop-tab cans, this bottle is unremarkable, except for the fact that it was the source of all of Schlitz's problems. Well, not the bottle so much as what's inside it, which at this point is 40-year-old beer. And I think we can all agree, that's nasty. But what makes it even worse is what is suspended in the liquid. And if you hold it up to the light, you can see the floaters. I think I have a bottle or two up here with floaters in it. Floaters, flakes, little white chips that settled on the bottom of the bottle like dandruff, and then clumped together like a glob of mucus. Super gross, I know, but technically harmless, except that they had the power to topple a 130-year-old legacy. It was those flakes that killed Schlitz. In the world of fermented alcoholic beverages, there's good beer and there's bad beer. And the people who know most about that are called Cicerones. They're like beer sommeliers. Douglas Miller is one of those people. Miller is a lecturer at Cornell University's Hotel School in the S.C. Johnson College of Business. And he has every kind of credential food and drink professional could have. So Miller, no relation to the brand, is a beer guy. And as such, I had a question for him. What, in your estimation, makes a beer good? The person that consumes it. Because there are certain beer styles that some people like, some people don't like. And that's why I tell people, drink what you like. That being said, I I think there's certain things that uh, elevate the quality of beer, the craftsmanship, the production, things of that nature. But it's up to the consumer what they consider as good beer. Taste is in the eye of the taster. Okay, it's a maddeningly diplomatic answer. Still. There are people who drink uh, bad beer and don't even know it. Quick beer lesson. Every beer is either an ale or a lager. An IPA, India Pale Ale, is obviously an ale. A Pilsner is a lager. The difference between the two has to do with the fermentation method. Lagers take longer to ferment. They're a real labor of love. And for all that loving, you end up with a fairly simple, low-alcohol beer. Ales, on the other hand, can be cranked out in a couple of weeks. They can have tons of flavor and higher alcohol contents. And usually, they cost more money. And in the current days of the craft beer explosion, most beers are ales. So that we're all on the same page. Budweiser, PBR, and Miller Genuine Draft are all examples of American lager beers. Schlitz was a lager, too, with a very simple flavor profile. No top notes of cloves or toffee, no peppery finish. But because these types of lagers are simple, the brewing process has to be incredibly precise. Pilsners don't lie because the beer is so simplistic, any faults or mistakes show up. 
if you have a little fault in IPA, you add some more hops, you hop it out as it's called. You can kind of bury it. I call it the hot sauce syndrome. You know, if you have a food dish, it's, eh, it's okay. A little hot sauce, it'll hide the little flaws in it. Um, and that's why IPAs are much more forgiving to make than lager beer. Lager brewing also has to be totally consistent. My little brother, RJ, who works in the craft beer industry, explained it this way while we were in a bar drinking lagers. You can take the snobbiest craft beer geek, and if they know anything about beer history or brewing culture, they'll, they'll tell you that something like Budweiser, you might think it's crappy, but it's the most consistent crappy you'll ever see. Every single time you have a Budweiser, whether you like it or not, it's gonna taste exactly the same. If it doesn't, then what are you really selling? It might have the same label, but if it's not the same liquid every single time, you've got a problem. So basically, if you've achieved a consistent lager, just keep on keeping on and your beer will be just fine. Don't tinker with it. But Schlitz was like, we're going to tinker with it. In the 1960s, Robert Eline Jr., the great-great-nephew of August Krug, was the company's president. He was a polo-playing Harvard grad, and he wasn't a guy who liked coming in second, which is where Schlitz found itself stuck behind Anheuser-Busch. Eline figured if Schlitz couldn't beat Anheuser-Busch in production, they would at least try to beat their rivals in profits. So Eline pushed to make the breweries more efficient and thus more profitable, in theory. Schlitz developed mechanisms to speed up the fermentation process to get more beer on the market quicker. They call the new process accelerated batch fermentation. It took their brewing cycle from nearly a month down to two weeks. But the Schlitz Air also trimmed expenses by cutting some corners. The brewery started using cheaper ingredients, replacing some of the barley with corn syrup and the fresh hops with dried hops pellets. Hart Posen, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Business, says there's nothing inherently wrong with what Schlitz did. With a caveat. The mistake is not cost-cutting. The mistake was cost-cutting that affected the flavor in a meaningful way. This critical miscalculation became known as the Schlitz mistake, cutting corners on quality to save some cash. The company made these changes quietly, assuming that Schlitz drinkers wouldn't notice the difference. But, says Doug Miller, you can't mess with a person's quaff and expect them not to know. Those beer drinkers know their products. And beer drinkers are finicky bunch. If you change their beloved product, they will revolt. Um, regardless on what people perceive it as quality, um, any flavor changes, any changes to color, any of those changes, there are beer drinkers who revolt and say, nope, it's not the same product, move on to something else. Schlitz drinkers did notice the changes. Frankly, some of them were pretty hard to ignore. Because it aged its beer for less time than its competitors, the company had to add an ingredient to prevent the beer from getting hazy when it was chilled. That product, called ChillGuard, is what produced those gross, mucusy flakes. And it wasn't a good look for Schlitz, says Leonard. The brewery didn't know what to do about that. So the, the suggestion was by the distributors, let's pull it off the shelf. Let's take it off the market. The brewery refused to do that. They had so much product out there in the marketplace, they didn't want to pull it. Once people got that flaky beer, that was the beginning uh, end for them. Peter Eline, part of the brewery's founding family, was working at the company at the time of the flakes. He remembers having to deal with angry beer distributors not at all pleased with the quality of Schlitz's product. 
Here he is being interviewed on Milwaukee Public Television. I was uh, working in Colorado and then Iowa, living in Iowa, working with a half a dozen wholesalers. And it was tough when a wholesaler would come in and say, our beer is not holding up. We were picking it up at, uh, at retail establishments and having to replace it. And I would have to notify the people above me. And it was very frustrating. Yeah, you lose people's trust. It takes a long time to get it back. That's right. It and does. You, nothing is more trustworthy than a good beer. That's right. You can't mess with anybody's beer. <laughs> Eventually, Schlitz quietly recalled 10 million bottles of flaky beer at a cost of $1.4 million. But the damage was done. It was easy for consumers to find another cheap light lager to drink. And they did. In an eight-year period, the company lost roughly 90% of its value. During that tumultuous time, the company suffered another setback. CEO Robert Eline Jr. died of leukemia. And for the first time in four generations, a non-family member took the reins. Someone who wasn't emotionally invested in the company like the family was. Someone who was about to run the company further into the ground. See, I told you they may be cursed. Spectacular failures are rarely the result of one or two missteps. Professor Hart Posen sees Schlitz's decline as more than just an issue of skimping to save money. Yeah, you know, so the standard takeaway is don't mess with the taste for short-term cost-cutting. I think that's not the real relevant story. The real relevant story here is the job of the firm and the firm's top management is to understand the basis of competition in their industry. Competition in the beer industry in the 1970s and 80s wasn't based on flavor. It was based on branding. The cigarette company Philip Morris had just acquired Miller and ramped up the beer's marketing game. They knew that cigarettes weren't that different from beer. I mean, what smoker could really taste the difference between a Pall Mall and a Benson and Hedges? The real distinction was in the marketing. Were you a Marlboro man or were you a Joe Camel kind of guy? Did you want to live the high life with Miller or did you want to go for the gusto with Schlitz? At the same time Schlitz was fiddling with their product, the new leadership also decided to cut the company's marketing budget. Being a bit better at production was great, all else being equal, which of course they didn't quite do. You know, having lower cost is, is great. But that's not the basis of competition in that industry. It's about differentiation. Let me offer you a very basic tip on how not to fail. Play the stinking right game. Miller and Anheuser-Busch and the other big breweries were playing tackle football. Schlitz was playing dizzy bat in the end zone and then trying to run 50 yards. But they didn't know it until it was too late. An advertising gamble Schlitz made in the late 1970s was one of the final nails in the company's coffin. In a series of ads that came to be known as Drink Schlitz or I'll Kill You spots, burly men issued vague threats about drinking Schlitz. In this ad, a boxer's drinking Schlitz after a fight. Excuse me, champ. Great fight. Now, we'd like to take away your Schlitz and have you endorse our beer. You want to take away my gusto? <laughs> Say, you tickle me. <laughs> you want to take away my Schlitz, my gusto. Well, I'm going to play Picasso. And put you on the canvas. <laughs> You're going to be down for a count so long, they're going to use a calculator. <laughs> take away my gusto. If you don't have Schlitz, you don't have gusto. Ultimately, Schlitz did lose its gusto. In 1981, its Milwaukee plant shuttered. The following year, Detroit rival Stroh's bought Schlitz for $500 million. And with that, the 130-year-old brand was no more. 
Leonard remembers when it happened. I, I don't think there was a sense of sadness. I think there was a sense of disappointment, frustration, and anger. The fact that they shut down and the fact that they sold out. I think the same thing happened when Paps shut down and moved out of the city. I think there wasn't a sense of sorrow or, or loss. I think there was a sense of Milwaukee of resentment and anger that these breweries abandoned the city. Today, you can still buy a beer called Schlitz. It's one of a handful of legacy brands bought by the reincarnated Paps Brewing Company, like National Bohemian, Heilman's Old Style, and ironically, Stroh's. But Schlitz isn't a household name like it used to be. It's a low-priced novelty beer meant to evoke nostalgia for a simpler time. And unlike Schlitz's Zenith in the 1950s, when there were only a few players in the game, today there are thousands of brands of beer. Right now, there are around 8,000 breweries in this country. That's twice as many as before Prohibition. Beer drinking has become more sophisticated. Sure, Bud Light is still the best-selling beer brand in America, followed closely by Coors Light, Miller Light, and Budweiser. But most of the breweries today are making a craft product. And those beers benefit more from a sense of place and a unique flavor than huge marketing campaigns and brand loyalty. If Schlitz had stayed true to its founder's vision all those many years ago, who knows where they'd be. But they probably wouldn't be a spectacular failure. Spectacular Failures is a production of American Public Media and the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. It's hosted and produced by me, Colossal Disaster, Lauren Ober. Magnificent Triumph, Whitney Jones, is the show's producer. Catherine Winter edited this episode. Our theme music is by the delightful David Shulman. Other original music in the show came from Jeremy Castillo and Jeremy Ray. Lauren D. is the interim director of podcasts at APM. Our other stellar APM buds include Alyssa Dudley, Tracy Mumford, and Christina Lopez. Big love to the Marketplace DC Bureau, especially Betsy Streisand. Kudos to Maureen Ogle, author of Ambitious Brew, the story of American beer, which was a really great reference for us. And shout out to my little brother, RJ, for letting me tap all of his beer knowledge. Get it? Tap. And then there's Leonard. So... In second and third grade, I I was Steve. And as a matter of fact, the what? Uh, Steve is a cool name. <laughs> but but Leonard Leonard. <laughs> Last but not least, here's your weekly biz whiz, courtesy of the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Today, some advice for job seekers from Professor Joel Waldfogel, the Frederick R. Kappel Chair in Applied Economics in the Strategic Management and Entrepreneurship Department. He says, don't fight the robots, join them. Once you see that a machine can do something that you're thinking of doing, that's probably not a good thing for you to, to make your career. But some of these technologies make us much, much more effective. Those are opportunities where there will be, let's say, big and increasing rewards. And so that's why today so many people are going into the analysis of data using essentially computers and statistics, because those are tasks and occupations where new technology has come along and made us better at what we do. Hey, friends, Lauren here. Did you know that Spectacular Failures has a newsletter? Get out. No, we do. Each week, we'll send out behind-the-scenes extras from episodes, weekly team recommendations for things we love, a sneak preview of upcoming episodes, and other fun stuff. You can sign up now at spectacularfailures.org 
newsletter.